Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smithana. Jessica, I've been so excited for this interview that we have today because our guest discusses a topic that is really near and dear to my heart. Hmm. And that topic is quitting. Oh. Yes. I like that I acted surprised even though like I am also, I know what the episode's about. <laughs> I love it for us, Jess, and I love it for you. You're, you're playing along. I love I'm it. I'm pretending to be the audience. Okay, what are your thoughts on quitting? Why is this something yeah. that you want to talk about? Well, I think in the world of athletics, it's almost like the th- you're touching the third rail or is it the fourth rail? What can you, it's breaking the fourth wall and touching the third rail, I think right? it depends like how many train tracks you have. If it's like an electric train, like one of the rails okay. you're not supposed to touch. I actually right. don't know where that expression comes from. I don't either now that I'm attempting to use it. It must be very hot. Fourth that estate. Rail. <laughs> the fourth estate. <laughs> Which the third one's rail. estate? I don't know. The fourth estate's the media breaking the fourth wall is what Fleabag did, mm-hmm. right? And then the third rail is a very sensitive topic, right? Is yeah. that, I think I have sure. that right. Okay. I think we'll go with sure. that. You're the writer, Sure, Kate. You should probably know. I have an excuse. Usually I have a Google machine and I am able to live check these things as I'm mm-hmm. writing, but we're going to flow with this now. The third rail of quitting in sports, you'll hear our guests really approach it from a different point of view, which is that like quitting is the biggest asset you could have in not just sports, but in life, like the faster you know when to leave something, the quicker you can find the thing you're meant to do. I think in sports, all of the time, you've got athletes who get into a sport and then it might not be the right one for them, but they really can't get out of it because in the world of athletics, if you quit something or if you are a quitter, there is no upside character-wise and the way that that gets described to people. So you you see in the sports world, it's impossible to quit something. I even feel like we need new language around it unless, as our guest says, like we can reinvent the word quit to actually be a positive sometimes. But otherwise, it's like you should be able to leave a sport. You should be able to, I don't know, right? Because in sports, the only way you can leave gracefully is if you win a Super Bowl and then you ride off into the sunset. Yeah, quitting is seen as a failure, right? Even though everyone at some point has to quit what they're doing. A lot of the most controversial like sports topics of the last couple years has been Simone Biles quitting her event at the Olympics or Naomi Osaka quitting before an open championship. Like there are so many examples of it in sports and the conversations get so supercharged because people see it as like, a moral failure sometimes to quit something, even though quitting can be the natural progression of a career, quitting can be the best thing that you can do, or quitting can also be like something that you just have to do. So it's yeah. it's an interesting concept. And this is really a high stakes example, but in the documentary Free Solo. If you're free soloing, it is perfect execution or certain death. Oh, free solo. <laughs> Goosey's just thinking about it. It's capturing this like really dramatic moment where the penalty of a mistake is death. And in the first half of that film, we see quitting happen. He is not prepared for the climb. And so he, he, he stops it and he postpones it. And I think oftentimes we think about quitting as like you have left it and you will never pick up any piece of it again rather than seeing it as like, this is a decision I'm making right now and I may save little pieces of what I've used or what I've gained. I may just take a break and delay it. And I think calling it quitting leads people to not make that decision because then they think it says something about their character. And I think in sports, we need better language around it. And I hate the word pivot. 
And our guest today, I keep saying our guest because it's like a dramatic reveal. <laughs> um, she also kind of like in her book doesn't love the word pivot either. So I don't, we just need new language around it, Jess. But like we can still talk about like a pivot foot in basketball, right? Absolutely. When okay. it comes to the X's and O's of and a like proper gymnastics. pivot foot. I feel like there's pivoting yes. in gymnastics. Okay, that's good to know. What are your yeah. thoughts about your own times that you've quit in your career? I tried to quit basketball when I was in college and people around me asked me not to do it and it ended up being okay for me, but I know other people who probably should have quit but didn't because they felt like it meant they were a weak person. And then in outside of sports, you don't even have to necessarily say you quit. You can be like, I'm going into the new phase of my career. You don't have to necessarily quit. So I don't know. We should probably let the expert discuss this now because That's a good idea. this guest is the expert on quitting and also an expert. I don't know how much you'll hear of it, but an expert on TV shows as well, Jess, as we found out. And next week, I'm going to quit wearing the same exact thing that you're wearing when we record because right now <laughs> I'm a little freaked out by the fact that we both have on the same color shirt. So we'll get to Annie Duke. Uh, you gave it away. And also on the show today, Jess, uh, an element I'm very excited about. It's a campfire, and it is telling the story of a very cool event happening in just a few days out on the West Coast. And don't skip the ads. (laughs) Uh, Yes, we've got a special treat on the backside of this interview for you that we have been cooking up for some time, and Jess and I are incredibly excited about the outcome of this creation of ours. Our guest today is the author of many books, including Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. She won the 2004 World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions. Annie Duke has defeated nine of the strongest poker players in the world. And the 2010 National Heads Up Poker Championship. Her lifetime winnings total more than $4 million. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on. Annie Duke. We always ask people that we interview what their favorite sports movies are. And I'm wondering if you have any favorite sports movies or favorite card movies or like game related movies. I do actually have a favorite sports movie. Okay. Which is Blades of Glory. Wait, is the ice skating the- one with Will Ferrell? I love that. Oh movie. my god, that's we've never gotten that answer. Okay, come on. When they do the move and the skate, like yes. literally takes the head off. I swear to God, if you cut my head off, and then that's yes. the whole thing in the end. That <laughs> I mean, it's Will Ferrell and Napoleon Dynamite as a skating pair. It's so yeah. funny. Yeah. Is there a card movie that like actually gets it right? I mean, of all the movies in terms of getting it right, Rounders probably comes the closest. Okay. Just in terms of sort of getting the world kind of right. I mean, there's some things that are clearly made for entertainment that don't really get it right. I think the problem is if you really got it right, I'm not sure it would make a good movie. Um, (laughs) You know, I can reach back, you know, the Cincinnati kid, which doesn't really get it right, but the Cincinnati kid is so good. Steve McQueen, Edward G. Robinson, Carl Malden is in it. That's a really good one. And then the other one that I would recommend, you know, besides Rounders, which I mean, obviously is a classic, right? It's Big Hand for a Little Lady, which is hilarious. It's Joanne Woodward and Fonda, not Peter Fonda. 
Henry. Henry Fonda. Thank you. Sorry, I'm so old. Um, it's it's uh, so it's Henry Fonda and Joanne Woodward. You seem to be aware of the poker game that's going on over the hotel. I am. And it's just really hilarious. Okay. For reasons too uh, un unreasonable to go into here, I happen to be playing in that game. No. Yes. It's a very good movie. So the poker movies I really like don't end up being that much about poker. It's kind of what I think would be the way that I would put it. I feel like we would say the same thing about sports movies, though, too. It's like they, they get a lot of things wrong. But in the poker movies, what is the thing that you think is most often misrepresented? So the stuff that they really get wrong. So I, so I can actually take something from Rounders, which I think is overall very good. There's a scene where Matt Damon comes in and he's like in a home game and he watches a little bit of the action and then he literally names the exact cards that the people are holding. You were looking for that third three. The DA made his two pair, but he knows they're no good. And Mr. Eisen is futilely hoping that his queens are going to stand up. That doesn't actually happen. What Sometimes it does. Like occasionally somebody plays a hand in a way where it's so very clear that they have to have exactly the ace jack of clubs. But mostly what you're doing is you're putting them in a zone. So you're thinking about a range of hands that they could possibly have. So you're like this probability they have a straight draw and it's this probability they have a pair and this and you're sort of you're kind of like integrating across those ranges in order to figure out what your best play would be. So you're trying to optimize the play that's going to work well, hopefully against most of the range of hands that they could be holding. Sometimes you assign a probability that's much higher to one hand than any others, and you might play specifically against that hand. But it's almost never that you go would ever be like, you have jack 10, and you have two sixes, and you have whatever. Now, for dramatic effect, it was great, but I don't think it was particularly realistic. And then the other thing is that it's a little bit like not with a bang, but a whimper is the way that poker really kind of goes. Whereas in the movies, it's not with a whimper, but a bang. I think like there's this very big hand in the Cincinnati kid where it's a straight flush against quad. So have I seen that? Sure. In a game where there's not cheating, which I don't think there was purported to be in the Cincinnati kid. It was just, it was sort of like the hustler, but for poker, you know, it just sort of was like the person was better. No, like you just, that doesn't come up a lot. And it's mostly like someone tries to bluff and they get caught or it's one pair against one pair, you know, that kind of thing. So this is actually something that rounders did better because they weren't making those crazy big matchups for dramatic effect. But for dramatic effect, I think they think people want to see like, you know, a straight flush against four of a kind. It's like, that's not really what happens in poker. So I would say they really absolutely get that wrong. And then the last thing they get wrong that really drives me nuts is they seem to have no idea how people actually bet and what the rules of betting are. <laughs> and again, rounders did this incredibly well. They got this all right. The movie where Sarah Jessica Parker gets she's lost in a game of poker by her fiance or something like that. I don't know if you remember that. Jess is Googling right now. It's something Las Vegas, something like that. Like her boyfriend or somebody fiance loses her in a game of poker. I don't know what to do. You brought me to Las Vegas and you turned me into a whore, Jack. Sounds like a 90s movie. Honeymoon in Vegas? Maybe? Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, that might be it. So okay. what they'll do is they'll have people do this again, I think because it's more dramatic. Like, I see your 1500 and then they go and they go and i raise you i see your 20 raise you 25 well that's completely illegal in poker it's what's called a string bet so you have to do it all in one motion that's number one and then number two the other thing is that if a game is table stakes which these games always are you can't be like i see your 1500 and then like in the middle of the hand be like and can i take my watch out of my pocket and bet that too 
because mm. it's just not the way poker works because you have to be able to, as a poker player, see what somebody has in front of them because it changes the way you play the hand. So someone can't all of a sudden in the middle of a hand reach back into their pocket. It's just like completely illegal. They would have to wait, play that hand out and then chip up in between hands that you're allowed to do in a cash game. And then they have the deed to their car in their pocket somehow. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, oh, and I'm gonna bet my car. And it's like, no, you would have had to have your car on the table already. So that's also incredibly, incredibly wrong. So they all make these mistakes. And I think it's because they think it's like more exciting on the screen or something. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I see basketball being played in a movie, I'm embarrassed for whoever has made that movie. So it's probably pretty similar. The only one yeah. that really gets it right is Love and Basketball. That oh, I don't know that one. Okay, yeah, I'll have to check that Omar one out. Epps, Sinai Latham. Um, it's mm -hmm. a great movie and they get the basketball right, which is always good. Okay, but Annie, we're gonna get to quit, but first okay. we're gonna stick on this. Is it a movie trope that in the back rooms of Hollywood, there are young actors who wanna learn how to play poker? Yeah. This is really I mean, happening in real life. Yeah. Okay. Why? Yeah, I mean, I can name some of them, like Tobey Maguire. He played a lot of poker. He was good at it. Didn't he play an actor who was also, he, who was an actor trying to learn how to play poker in some movie? It, maybe in Rounders? I, I want to say or yes, it, like, but I don't, know, I don't know what movie. <laughs> James Vanderbeek did it too. I think he was in a movie playing an actor who wants to learn how to play poker. Oh, I think that's, pro I think that's probably true as well. Okay. But, you know, Ben Affleck, he played a bunch of poker. He actually won a tournament once. Um, a, a bunch of people do. Hank Azaria plays poker. There's a bunch of writers who play poker. Molly's um, game. Molly's game. That's right. Yes. Yeah. There's a bunch of, I don't know if it still is a big thing, but like back when I was living in LA and I was playing poker, I mean, I, I retired in 2012. So please don't ask me anything about poker after 2012. We won't. I don't know. <laughs> back then it was like all of the rage. There were so many people. Josh Molina was a big poker player. I played in a game with David Schwimmer once. I'm in for 50 cents. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was just like, there were a lot of, a lot of actors were playing poker. And then and actually, you'd be like, the celebrity. No. <laughs> I think Matthew Perry played poker for a while. That there were a bunch right. of producers that played poker, a bunch of directors, a bunch of writers. It was like a big thing in Hollywood. Okay, going a little bit to Quit, which I thought was awesome because I have written some stuff on like athletes and the difficulty in leaving. A I was even trying to avoid the word quit for years because... Yeah. Poor athletes would be like, I quit. And I'm like, why can't you just leave the sport or exit the sport? Why do you have to quit it? So reading good parts of your book about like grit versus quit was really, really interesting. Let's start here because I it's I don't know if I have my research correctly, but it feels like when something I read something that in 2004 on like your first big poker tournament, you got chastised for folding. I don't know if that's the right term, a pair of tens. So it yes, seems like I still held you. OK. Who was a pretty famous poker player. So, Very famous. So it seems like you were pretty adept at the art of quitting right from the beginning in poker. Did you always think of it as like, this is this is an asset or this is how I see it? Or did that come later when you were writing this book and thinking about all of this? Okay, so, so with a lot of these things, let me just say that I think sometimes it's hard for us to construct our memories, like to accurately remember what we were thinking at the time. What I can tell you is that in poker, in order to be a good poker player, you really do have to have this skill, which is being willing to fold. You got to know when to hold up, know when to fold up. In the case of the two tens, the one that you're remembering, in a very public way, 
where you're going to have to deal with everybody thinking you're an idiot if you folded the best hand, which is psychologically a lot of pressure. Because if you call in that situation, people don't think you're as much of an idiot as if you fold in that situation. Like somehow folding the worst hand, which is a, a pot mistake, it's a little bit mathematically worse than calling with the worst hand just to start with, but also just psychologically or cognitively, you're going to get a lot more flack for that. But from the get-go, what you were trying to do is try to figure out when is it right to stick with the hand and when is it right to release the hand? Because the thing that you'd never wanted to do was be churning money through a game with a hand that was rated to lose in the long run. So most of the conversations that you were having as a player with people that you were bouncing hands off or bouncing ideas off of were about, you know, what was the right line of play? Was it correct to continue? Did I read it wrong? Should I have bet more? Should I have folded? And you really sort of learn to treat folding and calling or raising as identical, right? In terms of what is, you're just trying to calibrate, right? You're not thinking of one is better than the other. You don't want to fold in situations where you ought to call just as much as you don't really want to call in situations where you ought to fold. And you're trying to get that balance right between the two and be pretty sanguine about the fact that when you fold, that's when you're guaranteeing that you lose the hand and cards might come. And it happens a lot. Cards might continue to come in that hand when you fold early where you'll see that you would have made the best hand. And you really do a lot of work on don't fall into that trap, right? Because if you do that, the only way to solve for it is to play every hand till the end. And then you're not really playing poker anymore. So you have to not only get really good at that for yourself, but when you hear other people say things to you like, oh, I shouldn't have folded. I would have made the best hand and won the pot. In your head, you have to say, that's the thing I don't do, right? So you have to create this kind of identity around treating those things very similarly and not falling into those traps. Wow. I feel like whenever I play blackjack, if I, I don't play poker, I, I always look at what card I would have gotten if I'd hit on it. So amateur move. <laughs> but why? Because in that alternate world, I am the victor of that hand. One thing that you see in blackjack all the time is someone will hit in a situation where uh, mathematically, maybe they weren't supposed to, or they'll stay in a situation where mathematically they were supposed to, the next, the dealer will win. The dealer will get a good card. And then everybody at the table is yelling at them. Yes. And it's like, they weren't hurting you. They were only hurting themselves because that card is random. And it was just as easily that that was going to bust the dealer, like that they were going to take a card that was going to bust the dealer. You know, but it's very hard for us. Once we know the outcome, if the outcome is bad, it's really difficult for us not to think of that as a good decision. In cognitive science, we call that outcome bias. In my writing, I call it resulting. That's what we use, the term that we used in poker. I think it's more intuitive to say resulting. And what that means is that you're just judging whether the decision was good by the result. And you can imagine if someone doesn't hit in a situation where they should, and the dealer wins, everybody's like, you're an idiot, you should have hit. But if they don't hit in a situation where they should, and the dealer wins, everybody's like, oh, thank God you didn't hit. But what? Yeah. Right? right. So, you know, so I think those things are really hard. And, you know, one of the things that's true, and this is true for quitting as well, is that the way we think about things prospectively is very different than the way we think about things retrospectively. So prospectively, we can all acknowledge that there are lots of conditions under which it's obviously correct to quit. As an example, if you're running a marathon and, you know, you've run 16 miles and then you break your ankle. We can all acknowledge that you should probably quit there. We would say for ourselves that we would quit there because we know that you can do a lot more bodily harm and there's lots more marathons to run in your life and why for the extra eight miles, which is sort of random, right? Would you ever put yourself through that kind of pain? So we can all think about that in, 
is sort of forward thinking. If I if I take a job and the box is toxic, obviously I should quit, right? If I'm uh, doing a project and I'm over budget and you know I've blown the timeline by three x, you know maybe I should probably walk away from this and spend my time doing something else. We can think about that prospectively. The problem is that's not the way we think about it once we're in it, and it's not really the way we think about it retrospectively. And I think this really brings up the problem is theoretically, we know that quitting is a good thing when the situation tells us that we ought to. We we kind of know that in theory, but when it comes down to us actually paying attention to very clear signals that we ought to walk away, we just don't do it. And so what we've come away with is we think that our main problem in life is that we don't stick to things enough. That's why we have all these aphorisms like quitters never win and winners never quit. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, and so on and so forth. But it's not our problem. Our problem, actually, at least if you're over 25, is that we stick to things too long in general. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Despite knowing these things, I still have a visceral reaction to the word quit. It's also yeah. a very interesting word visually that Q is very pronounced. How is your relationship with like the word quit? Does it do anything to you still? <laughs> Look, so my reaction is the same as everybody else's. It feels like I don't want to be a quitter because that would make me a loser. But I'm trying to change that for myself, right? It's part of the reason why I wrote the book. I don't want to say things like pivot or, you know, in the case of Serena Williams, evolve. I'm evolving. Or Lindsey Vaughn said, I'm starting a new chapter. And it's like, no, you're not. Like you're quitting professional skiing. And by the way, you have an absolute right to do that because you ended up in the hospital in the Olympics and checked yourself out AMA like three days later to come ski again. And you're a total badass. And we all know that. But even when people are really like Serena Williams too, it's like, why is she ashamed of quitting? Look at what she's done in the sport. She's clearly the goat, right? But she does. She wants to say I'm evolving. She doesn't want to say the word quit because that's how we feel about the word. And, and I'm trying to change that for myself and I'm trying to change that for other people. And again, I find myself doing it too. I finished a tennis match in October where I broke my wrist in the middle of the match. I mean, I didn't know it was broken, but I knew it was really hurt. I didn't walk off the court, you know, because I have the same reaction to the word as well. Do you think, actually, quick question here. Do you think tennis is the sport most like poker? Yes, strategically, yes. First of all, it depends. I mean, if you're playing singles, it's individual. And it's incredibly strategic. It's all pattern matching. So you have to match patterns and then you have to figure out what the weaknesses are of your opponent. You have to know how to play into those. You have to do something akin to bluffing. So as an example, like 
you can't always hit cross court because if you do that, the poacher, this would be in doubles, the poacher is going to know to come across that. So you have to quote unquote bluff. In other words, you have to show them that you're willing to do something else to make it hard for them to guess what you're going to do at any time. So it actually has quite a few parallels to poker. Why do you and why do other poker players stand up sometimes and like the last turn? <laughs> oh. Is it anxiety? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you'll see people, players stand up during games just because it's a lot to sit all that time. No, but it's anxiety. Like you're standing up like, okay, what's going to happen? I actually wasn't a big stander upper, but yeah. Every I once in a while. Every once in a while, you're just like, oh no, this is such a big moment. We do this thing on the show with like female athletes when like the moment they realized that sports was going to treat them differently. Oh, okay. So I didn't know if you had one when it came. I'm sure you have a bazillion. I saw that you have like your your three kinds of chauvinists as well. So, so <laughs> um. I started off playing poker in Montana. And there's a couple of really interesting things about poker. One is that if you look at the World Series of Poker, the year that the first year that I entered, I think it was 1994, the championship event. And last year, what you'll see is that it varies. It's somewhere between three and 5% of the entrants are women. Now, obviously poker has gotten bigger. So like in an absolute sense, there's more women playing, but like for it, that doesn't really matter. What matters is the proportion of women that are playing. So it, when you're talking about poker, you're talking about a place where women are really super minorities, Right. So obviously, automatically, that's going to change dynamics and like the way that you're treated at the table. But then on top of that, there's no HR department. And not only is there no HR department, but there's a very much a sense that if you don't like it, you can leave. Which, you know, I mean, I guess maybe in poker, that's okay. Because if you don't like it, you can leave. But I do feel a little bit like that was sort of what people said in the 1960s to secretaries who didn't like, you know, hands up their skirts, right? Like, well, if you don't like it, you can leave and you can go get another job. So I realized when I played in Montana, what I was in for pretty quickly. And a lot of it sort of went into two categories. One is really extreme sexualization. Just as an example, I had one person who I lost a pot to them. And he said, oh, that's okay, honey. You can just stick your legs up in the air across the street and get your money back. You know, and then you sort of look at the four person and they're just like, if you don't like it, you can leave. When I played in Montana, I got called the C word. 100% of the days that I played, you know, just like a lot of that kind of stuff. And then the other thing is that you have to be playing for an amount of money that hurts. Otherwise, it's kind of not fun. So when people are playing, they're playing for an amount of money where if they lose, it has an effect on them. And so that becomes very emotional. So when you're sitting at the table, and you're looking around about like, where are you going to unload this emotion? Do you think you're unloading it on the 220 pound guy over there, or you're unloading it on the 24 year old woman over here who weighs, you know, 125 pounds. Where do you think that's going to happen? So, I mean, that was partly like that C word being thrown at me all the time, just like a lot of anger. And I want to be clear, there were many people who were lovely, who I became very good friends with, who were really, really nice, but nobody's protecting you from it. Even the people that even love you, they're they're not really protecting you from it, at least not at that time, because I don't think they were seeing it. It was more like, haha, that's funny kind of thing. Or what I got a lot is it's fine for Annie because she's tough and she can take it. And so they weren't going to intervene in that situation because they just felt like I was tough and I could take it. And that was somewhat true, but not always true. And I spent a lot of times driving home 
in tears because it was a really hard place to be and a very hard, hard way to make a living. I think that now with Me Too and people kind of understanding a little bit more of this, that I imagine I would have been defended a lot more. But you could imagine in the 90s, come on, nobody was going to be coming to my defense. Okay, promise last one and quick. What is the best vegan dish in Philadelphia? Okay, the dish is at Veg. Okay. Which is an incredible restaurant. It's really, really good. And it's only vegan. Just V-E-G, Veg. V-E-D-G-E. Okay. So, and I'm going to tell you, by the way, they have a cookbook and I highly recommend it for any vegan because it's it's really like high-end, like non-vegans actually really love it. Yeah. So they have my favorite dish. It's actually an entree and it's literally just two kind of like smoked and roasted carrots on a bed of lentils. Wow. And it's ridiculously good. Okay. So uh, that, that's my, that's my favorite vegan dish in Philadelphia. Okay. I'm going, next time I'm in Philly, I'm going. But I will also say just on the junk food side, Front Street Cafe has vegan chili killies. This is good. That's what I got for you. Yeah. Thank you, Annie. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. This was like so cash. Like, I love this conversation. Hey, y'all. I am so excited about today's campfire. But before we dive into the storytelling, I wanted to take a second to set the stage for what you're about to hear. So on June 3rd, San Francisco runners are going to come together and attempt to take back the women's world record for the 100 by one mile relay. Now this is a Guinness Book of World Records world record. And the city of San Francisco has actually broken the record before. They did so as early as 1977, as recently as 1997, but the current women's world record in the 100 by one mile relay belongs to the Canadian Women's Milers Club. They did it in a time of nine hours, 23 minutes, 39 seconds, which makes for a 537 average mile pace. So San Francisco, the women of San Francisco are coming together at Cox Stadium on the campus of San Francisco State on June 3rd. And these are women ranging in age from 13 years old to 63 years old to take back this city record. So imagine trying to schedule 100 different runners in varying age ranges and stages of life to be able to come in a specific, probably eight minute block and run a mile. That is what has been done here. And because it's the Guinness Book of World Record, they take this stuff seriously. Not only do they have to video the entirety of the attempt, but it has to be videoed in slow motion. There will be a baton and it will be exchanged in the typical way a baton is exchanged at say the Olympics. It's okay if the baton gets dropped as long as it is not advanced. So if you drop it and it rolls forward, you go pick it up and you bring it back to where the exchange was made and then you keep going. However, if one of the runners cannot finish their mile, the entirety of the team is disqualified. So there's a lot going on here in this attempt at this Guinness Book of World Records, but it's a pretty cool event. 
The voices you are about to hear, you're going to hear two of them. One is Sean Sachs, who is putting on this attempt at the Guinness World Record. And the other is Margie Cullen, who will be a runner on June 3rd and ran collegiately at Georgetown. And one last note, they are also fundraising for the girls on the run of the Bay Area. So consider donating. As the women of San Francisco attempt to take back the Guinness World Record, they're also raising money, again, for the girls on the run of the Bay Area. All right, y'all. I hope you enjoy this story. I think I just saw it list somewhere. I'm part of the Impala Racing Team, which is a club in San Francisco, all women. Um, we do a lot of racing and the event just came up somehow and I saw it. My first thought was just, you know, this will be super cool to be a world record holder. But then, I mean, the more I've learned about it, it's just a really cool event. Like all women kind of working together for a goal and the idea of it being a really wide range of women across a really big spectrum. So we're talking about 100 women each running one mile consecutively with a baton. The origin of the relay is a little murky. Sometime in the 70s, apparently some team in Northern California decided to do it, I think in Petaluma. A running club in San Francisco called the Dolphin South End Runners found out about the record. And in 1977, they led the first charge to take the record for San Francisco. The record was broken by teams from other cities and San Francisco clubs retook the record in 1995, and then the last time they did it was again in 1997. And then just a couple of years later, uh, some women from Canada broke the record. By the time the Canadians broke it, the record was now nine hours and 23 minutes, which is a very fast mile pace of five minutes and 37 seconds. I've been training the past four weeks doing mile workouts. If we're gonna go really nitty gritty, I think I'm gonna try starting at around 80s and then see if I can cut down. And 80s per lap is a 520 mile. That's the goal. We'll have runners just out of middle school of 13 up to women who are 63 who can still run six minute mile pace. We're trying to make it as inclusive as possible by trying to get runners from every running group in the city we can, from every high school track team we can and spanning the age gamut. Not just age, but also stages of life. Like I've talked to two women who will both be about six months postpartum and they both had really different experiences with pregnancy and running and coming back. And then there's gonna be a woman five months pregnant. And then, yeah, like the 13 year old just started running last year. Another girl who's in high school going to college. A lot of people love relays in college. That's one of the most fun things to do because you're working with a team for one goal you're not competing against your teammates you're competing with them and so this is that times a hundred and literally a hundred women running a relay for world record that's something I'll never well one woman this will be her fourth relay so maybe I'll get to do it again but it seems like a once in a lifetime event somehow it was possible to organize this type of relay before email was invented but I have no idea how that happened. I've never organized a race before, but in this process, just by talking to people, every time I've hit an obstacle, finding a track, 
getting a timing system, getting the right kind of officials to comply with Guinness requirements. People in the running community have been awesome and have stepped up and connected me with other people who can help. So everywhere along the way, it's really come down to people just within the running community being super helpful and sharing and getting excited about the effort. The San Francisco running community is really special. Like there's so many clubs, there's so many beautiful places to run. San Francisco is a beautiful city. I feel like this just bringing everyone together. You can find 100 fast women if you just survey the whole country and you take the professionals. But in one city, you just have to work with what you got. And San Francisco happens to have a lot of really fast runners. But to be able to find all these women who are into running, it's very cool. I guess it was published last year, but for two years before that, I was doing kind of an investigation on high school running culture and kind of this, what I kind of saw as this dangerous rise of professionalization in high school running and girls who were trained, yeah, like professionals in high school, not being able to run when they were older. So that's part of why I was drawn to this relay, because this is an example of all these women who have been able to run their whole lives, who have been able to stay healthy. And it just shows like, you can run your whole life like women can run. show presented by Pink Apron Delivered Meal Kits. It's exactly the same as Blue Apron, they just changed the color of the box because they knew men wouldn't order from them. And by eliminating men from their customer base, the margin of customer error went down and they're able to pass the savings on to you. Use code HUNGRYGAL for 20% off your first order. Okay, so get this. Okay. Turns out that male golfers are offended that the pro golfers were making fun of them. The males are basically saying needing a jockstrap is not a joke. Oh, okay. I'll explain. <laughs> I'll explain. Yesterday, this controversy started out when Michelle Wee stealthily handed Daniela Kang a jockstrap after mm-hmm. she missed this four-foot putt. Obviously, as a joke about how yeah. male, males are, you know, emotionally weak. The two are friends, of course, uh, but in this day and age... The cameras catch everything. So we have this image of we smirking and stuffing the jockstrap right into Kang's bag. And voila, we've got jockstrap gate. Okay, like, come on, fellas. Like, don't twist your briefs in a bunch. Wait, wait, wait. First, let's hear from some of the male golfers. You know, having a penis in general is hard. uh, And worrying about protecting your penis while playing a sport is even harder. Yeah, you have no idea how scary it is to play a sport, and the whole time you're worried about injuring your penis. Little hard white balls winging all around. Any injury to my penis, and I would not be able to have kids. People act like penises are just decorative, but they do help. They really help make babies. Uh, If you are so worried about being injured, maybe your kind isn't meant to play sports. Yeah. 
maybe you should just stay home and raise your kids like you were designed to do. Women have the kids, men raise the kids as God intended. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just take a second and imagine that we lived in a world where male golfers were a big deal. Uh, and taken as seriously as regular golf, as female golfers, taken as seriously as female golfers. Uh, what do you think would happen if one male golfer handed another, I don't know, a tampon, implying that enduring pain every month was a sign of weakness? It's just absurd, and so is this. Uh, penises can be a sign of strength. Do you know how hard it is to have a penis, and it's hot, and we still have to play through? We don't get to wear skirts and enjoy a penis breeze every once in a while. We have to wear long pants, and our poor little penises have to be wrapped up so tight. Ew! Thank God for that! Yeah, no way! We want to see that sight! Ugly, unshaved legs! I'm puking. I'm thinking about it, I'm I'm puking. You know, you you are very insensitive to our struggle in sports. Uh, It's so demeaning when people equate jockstraps with emotional fragility. It truly breaks my penis's heart. Okay, well, listen, just to be clear. Yeah, this is a point that we really want to crystallize. We don't have any issues with men. We love men here. We have sons. We're the daughters of fathers. For Christ's sake, okay? We love men here. Absolutely. They do make it hard, though, don't they? Like, when they make such a big deal of what was obviously a joke? (laughs) It's true. (laughs) God, it's true. But they can be so yummy to look at. Boys who need some, they only bring trouble. They'll make your heart Well, full disclosure, I don't really even know what a jockstrap is. So I I think that was funny, but I don't know and I don't want to know. Do people use, I don't hear men talking about jockstraps and cups as much as they used to, which is confusing to me because the equipment, their equipment is still the same. Why don't they, why don't we talk about that? That's true. I mean, maybe we need a tack cup. Maybe that's the next line in the tactical gear apparel line. Yes. But regardless of whether jock straps are still in circulation in 2023, I'm always a fan of any trip to the multiverse that we take, mm, Jess. Me too. As well as trips to the multiverse where we say the word penis like many, many times because it's just inherently a humorous word. It really is. So thank you to Nameless Numberhead for that. And hopefully we'll be back there soon. I'd like to just swim around in the multiverse for for an episode someday. Yeah. And obviously that was also making a very deep cultural commentary on the real world that we live in, Jess. Mm-hmm. So it was, very, it was doing a very lot of work. Subtle, very subtle, very oh, subtle cultural yeah. commentary. It's not on the nose at all, but that's what we do here at Off the Looking Glass on our trips to the multiverse. So happy to bring part two of the Jess and Kate show. If you missed the first iteration, it was on season one. And wow. that one was also a doozy. So you can go back and give that a listen. All right, Jess, should we tell people who helps us make this show? Remember last week we said we were going to do something like different during our credits and then we forgot to brainstorm what would be different. (laughs) I forgot that we said we were going to do that. So why don't we just, uh, we'll put a pin in that, as they like to say. I don't know what the pin, I don't know the rails, the pins. I'm not sure 
where these are all coming from, but... Wait, do people put pins in things like when they're sewing and then they come back to them? On a needle? Yeah, but maybe like if you're sewing a scarf or something and you know you have an area you need... I Oh, you know what? I don't know the origin of put a pin in it or maybe a pin in it like if you have a cork board and you have an idea. I was thinking like a cork board. Okay, all right. So let's go with the fact that pin in it is tied to a cork board, which I think this whole segue has turned the credits into something different anyway. So I think we've achieved our mission. (laughs) Thank you, Kate, for producing and co-hosting the show. And to Anya, our other producer, who uh, the show wouldn't be what it is without Anya. Big thank you also to Sean Sachs and Margie Cullen, who joined us for that campfire. And also, Jess, we should thank, first time thanking here on Off the Looking Glass, Ashlyn Salzano, who helped co-write that trip to the multiverse, the Jess and Kate sketch. So thank you, Ashlyn. Thanks also to Joel Schupack for sound designing the show. Carl Scott is our executive producer. Jess, you are our co-host and our producer. And Willow is your dog and the inspiration behind so much of Off the Looking Glass, the way she lounges behind the scenes. Kate, wait, announce the newest member of the Off the Looking Glass family before we go. Obviously, we'll do a whole episode on our new fur baby with them. (gasps) We just adopted a puppy. His name is Ragnar. He's a true Viking warrior. He's about six pounds. He makes adorable noises. He loves cuddling. He is precious. He and Willow are going to be fast friends. Yeah, um, that's for sure. So now everybody who does Off the Looking Glass has a dog. We've got Ruthie, Anya's pup, Willow, and Ragnar. So they're the three amigos now. No. Well, I'm excited for them to have a play date together someday. Yes. We should also thank um, that. That's it. That's all we have. You thank you thank the Neverhead. So let's thank, thank everyone. Annie Duke. We thanked all the people, including <laughs> Annie Duke. Thank you for joining us and talking to us about the power of quitting. Now let's quit this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>